What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and pop culture podcast. I am, as always, tremendously excited, very excited, stupendously excited for this Midnight Myth episode. I have been lobbying for this episode ever since we started the Midnight Myth Project. Three years ago now? Yeah. Three, yeah, four a, years ago? Almost four. Oh, I have no idea. A long time ago, I've been saying that I've wanted to cover this particular movie for so many reasons, and Laurel never, ever wanted to do it. Never. N- never agreed. <laughs> always said no. Always, actually, in a more diplomatic way, would say, I don't think I want to do that one this week. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know, let's put that off into the distant, distant future. And then for some reason, and I honestly, I want to know why you suggested that we talk this week about a comic book adaptation of an ancient warrior society going to battle with just a mere 300 soldiers. We are talking... Zack Snyder, Frank Miller, the humongous hit from that 2006 launched the career of Gerard Butler and Michael Fassbender, two A-listers who got their like big breaks in that movie. We are talking the 300. So yeah. <laughs> tell me, why did you want to do it this week? You know, I, I don't know that I can answer that question. I've been doing that a lot lately where I'm like, oh, well, why don't we do this? Uh, like I suggested Braveheart, even though I hadn't seen it and I was not sure what I'd be able to say. But yeah, it, we were on this kind of roll talking about historical fiction. Um, and we had talked about Braveheart, obviously, and gotten into medieval literature and, um, you know, the sort of war and formation of nations in this incredibly interesting time in uh, world history. And then we did Hamilton and we talked about American history and something that we were both really passionate about and really fairly familiar with. Um, But it's been a while since we touched ancient history. And I thought, you know, if we're on this historical fiction role and we're we're looking at all of these things, why don't we explore something that takes us to uh, your area of historical expertise, but also an era of myth-making? So we have, you know, this blend of uh, history and the, the origins, the beginnings of history as we know it, the first 
written histories ever come from the ancient world and come from ancient Greece and Rome. Uh, and also it's deeply uh, intertwined with mythology, which is at the core of our mission here at the Midnight Myth. So even though you're going to hear this probably in my voice a few times tonight, uh, 300 is not a movie that I like. I think there's tremendous value in uh, exploring how it, it uses history, how it uses myth, and how it tells the story that it does and why. I love it. I agree with everything you just said, except for it not being a movie I you enjoy. I so much. <laughs> I, adore, I adore this movie. I have always adored this movie. I saw it multiple times in the movie theater. I saw it in the theater, too. I was really excited about it. And I've seen it countless times since then. I've watched this movie so many times I have it practically memorized. It's one of my favorite all-time movies easily. And I'm not going to uh, be a defender. Uh, its critics have some really good points and some things that we're actually going to touch on in this episode today. But overwhelmingly, I adore this movie. So we're going to do 300. Let's, uh, let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get to work. But before we get too into it, Laurel, do your thing. My thing, as you know, listeners, is just that we want to hear from you. So we are on social media. We are over on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. Uh, and we're on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we would love for you to drop us a line, follow us there, keep up with our content, uh, and just let us know what you think of the show. Uh, you can also visit our website, midnightmyth.com, for more uh, content. There's blogs, lots of extra information. Uh, you can find a link there to our Patreon page, which is where you can support us for a small monthly donation in exchange for extra content. Uh, we have a new bonus episode for our Patreon supporters of the $5 level or higher, uh, and those are always a lot of fun. You can also, on our website, midnightmyth.com, find our merch store. So if you need a Midnight Myth t-shirt or a Midnight Myth mug, whatever, uh, head over there and you can grab those items. Also, the regular podcast took a week off last week. However, our side podcast, The Wheel of Ka, which is a, uh, it started out as a series of Derek and our buddy Steve reading through Stephen King's The Dark Tower series. And now that they have finished The Dark Tower, they are going through uh, Stephen King's entire library of novels. And they started with Salem's Lot. So they're reading through these iconic horror and uh, incredible books and uh, connecting them back to the Dark Tower and also extrapolating on a lot of the themes there. So that's a lot of fun. Check out that bonus episode. Read along with us. The voters, the listeners have voted, and the next book they're going to take on is Stephen King's It. Um, so if you are not deathly afraid of clowns, or even if you are, think about picking up a copy of It and reading along with Derek and Steve because they're going to have a totally killer episode uh, on that, or maybe two episodes. It's a long book, but I'm really, really excited to hear what they say about that. Yeah, we're, we are going to start reading it, I think, this week. So if you want to keep pace with us, you know, start this week and reread it or read it. It'll be my, I've read half of it. So I read, I started the book and I put it down and I can't tell you why. And I never picked it back up. Because you were too scared. Yeah, I think I got, I picked up a history book, I think is what really happened, but it was terrifying. So I'm very excited to actually read it start to finish and talk about it. And we did an episode on the It movie way, oh, way, way back. Way back. Yeah. yeah, so we didn't do one on the second movie because we didn't care for it as much. Yeah. But we did do one on the first movie. Okay, 
Long story long now, let us roll up our sleeves and talk all things 300. First, shall we do our briefest of brief recaps? Take it away, Derek. The movie 300 opens up with a child Leonidas, the future king of Sparta, going through his Spartan initiation into the Agogi, in which he is beaten, he is starved, he learns to fight, and has to fend for himself on a wintry night in which he ends up killing a wolf by trapping the wolf within a tight corner in a mountain, and he kills the wolf, skins it, and uses the wolf coat to keep himself warm, returns and becomes the king of Sparta. It then flashes forward to adult Leonidas when a Persian messenger comes and demands a token of earth and water from the Spartan king, a token of submission to Xerxes, who is the king of Persia, who fashions himself a living god. This is insufferable to the Spartans, who summarily slaughter all of the Persian messengers by kicking them into a well, and Sparta then goes to an oligarchic council called the Ephors, in which he asks for permission to march the Spartan army to war, even though it is not the war season to their holy calendar. The Ephors consult an oracle, who they also molest and lick. It's really gross. Yeah, it's gross. And the oracle tells uh, Leonidas that he must honor the religious festival of the Carnir and cannot march the Spartan army to war. This leads him with a pickle. He knows he has to fight the Spartans, but the laws tell him that he can't. So he gets 300 of his best soldiers, names them his personal bodyguard, and decides he's going to go for a stroll and marches 300 soldiers to Thermopylae, also known as the Hot Gates, a place where he can funnel the Persians into a narrow corridor where their numbers will count for nothing. This plan is largely successful as the Persians are unable to break the uh, the phalanx of the 300 until a um, Quasimodo-like Greek ex-Spartan named Ephialtes, traitor, uh, joins the sides of the Persians and marches them on a goat path to surround the 300, in which no retreat, no surrender. This is Spartan law. All 300 of the Spartans lay down their lives and die, except for one who Leonidas says, go back and tell our story. Then we see the final scene of the movie in which the one soldier who goes back and tells the story leads a contingent of Spartans against the Persians, 10,000 strong, to uh, finally defeat the Persians and end the Persian War. There's also a subplot with the Queen of Sparta who's trying to get a council to override the ruling of the Ephors to march the Spartans' armies in defense of Leonidas in which she is confronted by Councilman Theron, who has been purchased by the Spartans and refuses to let the queen have her say and override the ruling of the Ephors. This culminates with her taking a weapon and slaughtering him by stabbing him in the stomach, in which it cuts open his purse and a bunch of Persian coins come out, making him a traitor. And that's the movie. Yeah, well done. Yeah, you got a lot of that in there. <laughs> yeah. Briefest of brief. Briefest of brief. Well done. Where would you like to begin then? How can we understand this movie 300? You mentioned that you don't think the movie is very good. You don't find it entertaining. I like it. So what would you like to kick off in terms of analysis here? Uh, you know, I think it's it, it's an interesting film because, like I said at the beginning, we are at this um, 
this intersection of myth and history. And of course, this is adapted almost uh, frame for frame from the comic by Frank Miller. So it is filtered through a few different layers of uh, historical removal. We have this uh, event that happened in the ancient past and then was recorded by Herodotus quite a bit later. And then much, much later was uh, dramatized by Frank Miller into a graphic novel. And then even later than that was filtered through the eye of Zack Snyder. So I think it's very interesting that we are seeing uh, how many different men have put their spin on this uh, historical event. And I would love to, I think, start with, you know, what really happened uh, at Thermopylae and how did we get to uh, the portrayal of it that we have today? Yeah, I would love to take the lead on that. Having Please having do. studied this. Yeah. What we know about the Battle of Thermopylae comes predominantly from one source. You mentioned it. His name is Herodotus. Herodotus is an ancient Greek, and he wrote the history of what he called the Greco-Persian Wars, or just the Persian Wars. Herodotus is the first recorded historian in all human history. He called this work the histories. We have the word history because of Herodotus. So anytime you're trying to reconcile the ancient history, you want to learn about ancient Greece, you want to learn about the origins of historical writing, it all starts with Herodotus. Herodotus, I've read, and I've read his histories, and it is a very difficult read. It is very meandering. It goes all over the place. Herodotus is clearly making some things up and clearly telling a pro-Greek narrative. Herodotus attributed the Persian Wars and the causality, why it happened and how the Greeks won, to the gods being on the side of Greece and not being on the side of Persians. And everything is filtered through hubris, which is mentioned in the movie 300, where they say Leonidas has um, discovered Xerxes' fatal flaw. It's hubris. This is pulled directly from Herodotus, where Herodotus is saying, because the Persians fancy their kings as living gods, the actual gods were offended by this because they were not gods. They were actually men. Hence, the gods assisted the Greeks in defeating the Persians. Herodotus gives lots of evidence of this. For example, he tells the story of Xerxes being unhappy at a river because it was difficult to cross and him getting out a whip and flogging the river as if he could punish the river for not allowing his army to cross clearly. So there's lots of these anecdotal tidbits of how un-Greek-like and how hubristic and un-God-like the Persians are, and this is why they lose. And specifically, the Battle of Thermopylae, which means hot gates also in the movie, is a really difficult historical event to, pull, to fully pin down. There's tremendous debate over what Herodotus wrote and how accurate he is or is not because the bias is so clear, because there is no sources, and there are some things when you read Herodotus. For example, he captures this long dialogue between a Persian and a Greek, and I believe an Egyptian, if I remember correctly. It's like right in the middle of a battle, he's like, let me tell you about this dialogue. And it's like, this didn't happen. And you're just like, okay. But it's all about showing the different forms of government and the different government philosophies and how the Greeks 
who believed in constitutional governments. So the Greeks, ancient Greek city-states, these are not uh, a united nation. It's one thing that is a little misleading in 300 because they're like, from free Greek to free Greek. Right, yeah. You know, that's not really how the Greeks viewed themselves. Well, and Sparta was usually at odds with Athens, right? They were often... Correct. Uh, rivals. So at this period of history, so we're, uh, this battle took place around the end of the uh, 5th century BCE. So the estimated date is September of 480 BCE. So at this point in time, the two most powerful and influential Greek city-states were the Athenians and the Spartans. The Athenians were known for their democracy. They were known for philosophy and their great prowess in naval battles. They were incredibly good at sailing the seas. The Spartans were known for their, honestly, their Spartanness and their toughness, their military prowess. They were known for their sense of humor. They were known for their cleanliness, something that you see here, that the Spartans took great pride in grooming themselves, in having nice hair and having perfect physical form, something that we see kind of echoed in this movie to a degree, um, though highly fictionalized and romanticized. Oh, yes, very stylized. Yeah, Spartan warriors did not walk into battle naked. No. That's just insane. Yeah, but I'll have some details on why that matters a little bit later, but go on. Absolutely. Um, I totally lost my train of thought. What was I saying? We were talking about Thermopylae. Happened in ah, 480. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So we don't really know what happened. There's little to no archaeological evidence. The hot gates topographically don't exist anymore. So where this battle happened has shifted because, you know, the earth is moving. So we don't actually have a place to go and dig up archaeological evidence, or at least no one has found it. So the only account that we really have is Herodotus. Now, because History was literally invented by Herodotus and the tradition of writing down events for posterity, examination, and philosophical meditation didn't happen before Herodotus. We have no Persian account. So the Persians did not write histories in a way that we see the Greeks did. So we don't really know the Persian side of this. But essentially, what the movie gets absolutely correct, there was a festival of the Carnir. The Spartans were a very um, religious and very supernaturally oriented and superstitious ancient people. There was an oligarchic council called the Ephors, and they did have the ability to stop the Spartan king from going to war. And here's how Herodotus tells it. Spartan's constitution has survived to us to today by a, a, a future historian named Xenophon, and he wrote down a copy of the Spartan Constitution. So we have a good idea how Spartan government worked. And it's very complicated. There are two kings. They were both the commanders of the army, and it was a hereditary title. And they also held the most land. There was also a few different legislative bodies. There was one that oversaw the kings. There was another that was assembly of like the general people. And then there were the ephors, who were the five oldest members of highest rank. And the ephors kind of sat on top of the entire government structure. They had ultimate authority. They were not lecherous. They were not molesting oracles, as far as we know. They were not on top of a mountain. And nor is there any evidence they were ever paid off by Persians. And here's one thing the movie gets wrong. There's something the Spartans did not have and did not believe in. And that's coin money. They had no currency. In fact, they despised currency. To them, 
you shouldn't have individual wealth. All of the wealth belongs to Sparta, the greater oh, wow. good. Yeah. So the idea that the Persians could pay off Spartans is completely, totally historical hogwash, but it does add for good drama. So the E-Force did say, Leonidas, you're not allowed to go uh, and fight this battle right now. It's against the religion, and he was bound by it. There was also a prophecy that the Persians would finally be defeated once and for all, and they would never conquer Greece only if a Spartan king died in battle fighting them. Oh, wow. Now, this oracle came from Delphi, which we've mentioned before. And Delphi is the most important oracle of the ancient Greek world. It's where people would go to a priest called a Pythia, who would uh, discuss and then transmit the will of Apollo. So you go to the oracle at Delphi, you speak to the Pythia, you get Apollo's will, and Apollo is a god of prophecy. Apollo can see the future. So because of this, Leonidas had it in his mind, he had to die in order for the Greeks to finally defeat the Persians. So he musters up 300 Greek, um, I'm sorry, Spartan soldiers. He also organizes with several other Greek city-states, something that we see the Akkadians in the movie, and they back up the Spartans. There's no way 300 men, no matter how brave or strong, can resist a charge of 10,000 men in an ancient battle. Even if you're in a narrow passage and the, like, the, the physics of it are, are for you. Yeah. A absolutely. So behind, so the Spartans would lead every land battle anytime the ancient Greeks were working together. It's also worth noting several Greek city-states sided with the Persians. So many Greeks were fighting alongside the Persians because they saw the writing on the yeah, wall. Yeah, they saw a losing battle, and, and they were like, let's get on the winning side. That makes sense. Xerxes is the son of Darius. Now, both of these names, Xerxes and, Greek, and Darius, are Greek versions. Right. This is not the name that Xerxes would have called himself, which I knew back in the day and totally have forgotten. So, bad mom name. But anyway, the Spartans end up... For three days with a Greek contingent, they end up holding off the Persian advance. And it was truly remarkable and very frustrating. Until a goat farmer named Ephialtes, uh, this is all according to Herodotus, was so annoyed about this Greek army in his backyard, he led the Persians around a path to surround them, which all of the Greeks that were there, all of the other city-states, fled and Leonidas says, nope, this is my moment to die. And he and the 300 stay, and they get slaughtered. They fought so fiercely, according to Herodotus, that they, when their spears and swords broke, they started clawing and biting at the Persians. If you've ever heard the phrase, fight tooth and nail, it comes from Herodotus. He said the Leonidas and Thermopylae fought tooth and nail. That's where we get that phrase from. Pretty fun historical Yeah, fact. that's amazing. And that is then what, according to Herodotus, happened. In the meantime, this battle, functionally for the broader war, gave the Spartans and the Athenians time to organize a larger defense. The Athenians win a major um, naval battle and destroy the Spartan, I'm sorry, destroy the Persian um, navy at the Battle of Salamis and the Battle of Plataea. The Spartans, with a whole contingent of other Greeks, defeat the Persians over land, and this ends the Persian Wars. This was the second invasion attempt by the Persians. The first was by Xerxes' father, Darius, 
and was also uh, unsuccessful. And the second one was fundamentally unsuccessful as well. And the Persians were to never again try to conquer Greece. Greece would then go on to continue to be independent city-states until Athens started amassing a thing called the Athenian League. So they started making colonies and bringing other Greek city-states under their sway. This was not something the Spartans could condone. And then the Peloponnesian War between the Greeks and Spartans broke out. And that gets us to then the next great, second great ancient historian, Thucydides. And Thucydides really took historical writing to a new level. He um, removed the gods as the cause and consequences of the war. Thucydides was a doctor. So he looked at history as a way to prescribe ailments and war he saw as an ailment, in particular civil war, and wanted to know why the Greeks would fight civil war and how they could prevent future Greek civil wars by writing down this history and thus you have a more human and humanistic approach to history, which then shapes historical writing going forward. Yeah, that's kind of how you get the idea of those who uh, those who don't read history are doomed to repeat it. That's really fascinating. I want to thank you for this um, incredible historical background. And listeners, you can't see this, but Derek is not reading from notes. He just knows this stuff. It's just like deep within him. One more point. Yeah. One more point. So we see in 300, we see Leonidas um, kicking the, the Persian messenger into a well. That is also based on a real historical um, moment. Correct, yeah. However, it was not Leonidas who did it. By the way, when you study, at least when I studied this battle, he was called Leonidas, was how I was told to yeah. pronounce it. Not Leonidas, but whatever. Yeah, that makes more sense with how other Greek names are pronounced, but... We'll go with the movie pronunciation yeah, for but, sure. Yeah, whatever. I don't want to be too picky. So it was the first Persian war with Darius who sent a messenger to Sparta and asked for a offering of earth and water, which is exactly what the Persians did according to the Greeks. And it was the previous generation, the king before Leonidas, who ended up kicking the Persian messenger in the well. And that was considered to be a damning move. Everyone thought the Spartans would be damned because a messenger is protected under religious and divine law. But that happened because that happened when Xerxes went to other city-states and asked them to join the Persians um, in this war before they invade. So he asked for earth and water. He said to all Greek city-states except for Athens and Sparta. He did not ask for them because he was he wanted to get revenge for the first war. Wow, yeah. And wanted to raise Athens and Sparta to the ground, which... Tactically is a bit of a mistake because now you had two enemies that had no choice but to work together and formed a massive and fighting super force. super powerful, yeah. Both on land and sea. But yeah, Xerxes wanted specifically to destroy Athens and Sparta, which is why he ma managed this, uh, this second invasion attempt. Hubris, there it is. One other just interesting point. They talk about the Persians' numbers being in the millions. This also comes from Herodotus. There's no archaeological evidence. However, the Persian Empire was mammoth. It comprised almost all of what we now call the Middle East. It comprised uh, into North Africa and even parts of India. So it's this huge mammoth empire. The Persians are people that still walk the earth today. They are now the, uh, the descendants of the Persians now live in modern-day Iran. So that's where the Persians come from. The modern Iranians are the descendants of Persians. And 
one of the, the biggest questions of if they outnumbered the Greeks so immensely, if they were such a huge and rich empire, how come Greece wasn't so wasn't conquered? And it really was down to, as they describe in the this movie, the Greek phalanx. You get one of the best descriptions of how the Greek phalanx worked and why it was such a, a formidable fighting force. You locked shields and had everybody moving in coordinated attacks and movements. It's really difficult to break that up. And that's exactly what the Spartans and all the Greeks did. So the phalanx, a phalanx warrior is called a hoplite. So the hoplite military foundation was the dominant military force on the planet until it was advanced by a little guy known as Philip, who was from a place called Macedon. He had a son you might have heard of. His name was Alexander. And he, Alexander of, M of Macedon, would conquer the Greeks using a advanced form of the hoplite where he elongated the spears. So now he could penetrate through the phalanx and use this to conquer all of Greece. And then after that, what did Alexander do after Philip and Alexander conquered Greece? He took over the world. <laughs> he dismantled and destroyed the Persian Empire. Yeah. He used the Persian Wars and the history of the Persian Wars as a pretext to take his now advanced phalanx and used it to dismantle and destroy the Persian Empire and became known to us now as Alexander the Great. I think he got a couple of cities named after him too. That guy, that kid was going places. Now just to connect all of this, the Alexander's advancements in the phalanx became the dominant military force on the planet until another upstart little goating village of a city on seven hills invented the mandible. And that then became the dominant land military force and that little place is called Rome. Rome. Oh, man, you're just like so excited to be talking about like, I mean, this is Derek's like absolute uh, wheelhouse. But especially when we get into military strategy and military history, he just becomes like a total he, he reaches his final form, like the final form of Derek is talking about military strategy on the podcast. I literally just got goosebumps. Yeah. Um, so again, I want to thank you for all of this historical context and something that has jumped out at me as you're describing the battle of Thermopylae and the um, effect that it had and the ripple of consequences that came out from it um, is, you know, th these past couple of weeks, we've talked about stories that uh, are of real histories and that do center around military moments and that frequently are centered around underdog stories. Uh, so we talked Braveheart, which is, you know, this ragtag team of ruffians who go up against the English army and uh, eventually inspire like this incredible sea change. And then we have Hamilton with the uh, American Revolution, which it, we're led to believe was just a, a ragtag army that beat off the greatest uh, military force on the planet and formed uh, the nation that we now live in. And now we're talking about 300. So we can see uh, kind of how these stories throughout history have inspired people and how, uh, you know, the, the final moments of the film 300 are the Battle of Plataea. And we have Dilios, the one-eyed narrator, who was one of the Spartans and came back and told the story and now has rallied all of these free Greeks and is like, think of the 300, think of these men who laid down their lives, who had all odds up against them and still fought tooth and nail and 
if, if we can look to them as our heroic example, what can't we do? still be outnumbered, but the odds are good for any Greek here uh, because we are superior. And this kind of gets me into some of the intertwining of history and myth that is happening in the way the stories of the 300 are told. And I think this is true about Herodotus, about Miller, and about uh, Zack Snyder and how they tell this story. One of the most important things that is kind of said is a, a very casual line in this movie, but is important to keep in mind, is that the Spartans believed that they were descended from Heracles, or, or Hercules in the Roman pronunciation, which would be the more popular one, but we'll call him Heracles. Uh, this foundational myth about the Spartans comes from what's sometimes referred to as Hercules' 13th labor. So you'll remember from the myth that uh, Heracles completed 12 labors as penance for crimes that he committed while he was under Hera's influence, he went mad and slaughtered his wife and children. It's very sad. Uh, but in the 13th labor, he, uh, I mean, this is kind of a, a humorous uh, title that's applied to this thing that happened. He was at the court of King Thespius, and he impregnated 50 princesses in one night. So the seed was strong uh, on Hercules's part, and I guess we can't expect any less from the child of Zeus but uh, their offspring, the offspring of these princesses, would become the ancestors of the Spartans. So that's where they trace that lineage. And I believe this lineage is attested in Herodotus as well. Um, we can kind of thank the Heraclean paradigm for a lot of the virtues that we today associate with the, Spart with the Spartans and those performed in 300. So even when the movie is really stepping out of what is historically plausible, I think it's doing so to reinforce uh, you know, how we perceive the Spartans as in the Heraclean image. So uh, there's an emphasis on masculine physical perfection through conditioning, aka labors. So they go through rigorous training and rites of passage that put their body, that stretch their body to the limit uh, in order to become the peak of masculine perfection, which we see in 300 evoking the kind of images on Greek pottery uh, which we would call the heroic nude. So like you said, there's no way that uh, any fighter would go into battle wearing a bikini and nothing else, but we're given this image of the Spartans to evoke Greek pottery, to evoke this really classical image of the heroic nude, which is like, look at my rippling muscles. I am descended from the gods uh, and I have pushed my body to its peak perfection. Uh, then there's the excellence of the individual against great odds, which comes very much from the Heraclean and Homeric paradigm. Uh, so an individual Spartan is equal to 10 non-Spartan men or 100 non-Spartan men. That's like Heracles, that's Achilles, that's all of these great heroes of the mythic tradition. Then there's the ideal of a heroic death in battle, the immortal glory that comes from that. And Spartans, uh, I think this is maybe the most important one and the one that uh, 300 drives home the most, Spartans as an organizing force, right? So they're, they're up against 
an unstoppable tide of chaos, which is by turns labeled as mysticism and tyranny and uh, fear and superstition, where they're this logical force. They, are, they stand for freedom. They stand for um, what's right. They stand for reason. They stand for logic. And this lines up a lot with Heracles's labors, which whether it's slaying a monster that's been terrorizing a town or cleaning out stables that are full of horse poop, Heracles's labors are always an organizing force. He's up against an unstoppable tide of chaos, and he's exercising this restoration of order. So in that way, I think um, 300 is upholding uh, this Heraclean paradigm and saying, okay, don't forget, these guys are descended from the gods. And where this all comes back together is by the time this was history, it was already myth too. Uh, the, the role of the, the Spartan 300, the role of the Battle of Thermopylae in history, it's not a victory, but it is the spur toward a greater victory. It is this thing that was told among people that once they heard this story, they picked up their spears and they wanted to fight. It's important to note that right after the battle, this was not at all looked at as a heroic sacrifice. Right. The Greeks are a fiercely, ancient Greek um, city-states were fiercely competitive and uh, marital societies. They liked games. That's where we get the Olympics from. Many sports that we still use today, wrestling, racing, the Greeks loved disc throwing, for example. Um, and they also were, all Greek city-states, expected men to fight. And if you fight, you're expected to win. There is no silver medal in the ancient Greek Olympic Games, right? It is all you win or you lose, period. It wasn't, only, it wasn't until after the wars and after the Greeks had cemented a victory that there started to be a reimagining and a rediscussion point around Leonidas's uh, legend and his sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. Because when you're in the middle of the war, that's just one other battle lost. But once the war ends, you have the luxury of saying, this was the sacrifice needed to get here. You're able to craft a historic narrative that takes this lost battle and puts it on a pedestal and makes it a heroic, noble sacrifice as opposed to just a battle lost. And in many ways, assuming Herodotus is correct about the Battle of Thermopylae, and I do assume um, Herodotus, though, is not a trusted source in many ways, I don't think he would have gotten this completely backwards. In order for him to have had access to the legend of Leonidas and the sacrifice of 300, it's something that the Greeks had to have been actively talking about in order to make it into Herodotus. So I do assume this did happen, and it did happen largely the way described by Herodotus, but it, was, it took time in order for that to seem like a heroic sacrifice. That's, yeah, that's great to distinguish that. Because at first, it's just a loss. You know, as much as a lot of people look at 300 and look at it, it's a little cartoonish and laugh at its inaccuracies, there's no way that the Persians had rhinoceroses and, and elephants, elephants and trolls and that the Persian immortal force, which is also a real um, contingent of Persian elite warriors, 
were these like goblin-like creatures. Like all of this is insane. They didn't have gunpowder when they had them throwing gunpowder grenades at the, the Spartans. There certainly weren't like gigantic executioners who don't have hands but have blades chopping people's heads off. Like all of that is absurd. I would say that in terms of a work of historical fiction, it is very Herodotian in spirit. It captures something about, and I think it's part of the legacy of Hercules in there and very much part of the Herodotian spirit. What Herodotus ultimately does in his histories is he demarcates the East and the West and says that there is a place called the West. It is Greek. It is Greek speaking. It has the favor of the gods. It is logical and it is destined for greatness versus an East, which is not logical, which is not as civilized, though a bigger empire, though a more powerful empire for sure, though uh, much older societies in the East compared to what we see in Greece and in the ancient Greeks in particular. It's saying that this is somehow, this is a new thing and it's better. It is a, uh, a line between two civilizations that to date still are somewhat antagonistic towards each other. This is the foundation of what became Western civilization and what became Western historical discipline, historical writing is always going to be under the umbrella of Herodotus who was saying, we Greeks are the Westerners. Herodotus had a word for the Persians and he coined it. As far as we know, it wasn't used before and it was barbarian. What that meant, it was a derogatory term. It wasn't like Conan the Barbarian that we know today. It wasn't some noble, savage warrior. No, it was because their language to Herodotus sounded like bar, bar, bar. It was to denigrate their use of language to show that the Greek language is superior to the Persian language. And because the Greek language is superior, the Greeks are able to debate, they're able to write, they're able to have a thing called history, and it, it elevates them at a higher level of a, as a more superior society to the Persian East. And um, in this way, the movie 300 captures, I would say perfectly, that Herodotian spirit. But this comes with a great warning. And the great warning is that once you have established yourself as the superior civilization, it's really good place to be. That means you have to de facto have an inferior civilization because you can only be above a civilization if there's one below you. And that can echo throughout history and time and create dangerous paradigms, dangerous paradigms that can lead to real life and death situations such as Alexander the Great conquering the Persians, such as the Romans conquering North Africa, such as medieval um, caliphates and crusader states in a gripping battle deciding who is going to dominate the planet. Will it be the Catholic West or the Islamic East? And to date, we are still trying to untangle what it means to be a West versus an East. And we currently, we live under the shadow of this great Western civilization, but we're trying to say, no civilization is actually better than another. You can have more money, you can have 
better buildings, but the civilization itself is not something that can be ranked on merits. Yeah, no, this is discourse that is incredibly difficult to dismantle. And to to look at Herodotus and the, uh, the sort of the inception of history and how the inception of history is deeply uh, and inextricably tied to the creation of this, uh, you know, not insignificant uh, difference between real cultures that were very different, but largely arbitrary uh, distinctions and binaries that were drawn there. It's it's really kind of scary to think how long we have been living under uh, a really, I think, misleading uh, paradigm. And this is one of the reasons that the movie 300 uh, doesn't really work for me is because I think that 300, while, uh, like you're saying, living in that Herodotian spirit and very much playing with um, the subjective versus objective history, like we're clearly getting a non-objective history because we are hearing it filtered through Dilios, a Spartan, uh, who was present uh, or at least this fictionalized version of him was present at the hot gates and then was not present at the final sacrifice, but still has the stories. There's this kind of weird blurring of the lines between subjectivity and objectivity there. But we are looking at something that is fundamentally propagandistic. And I think what what put me off about this movie and still makes me uncomfortable about this movie is how much it deals in those dangerous stereotypes and in those dangerous false binaries. So East versus West are demarcated as, you know, progress versus uh, superstition or uh, this forward-thinking society versus this really backward society. And then even more dangerous stereotypes are layered upon that. So the Persians, and especially Xerxes, are portrayed as uh, feminine, as uh, the opposite of the masculine perfection and virtue that we see in the Spartans exemplified. Uh, Xerxes is portrayed as lavish and luxurious and not a man who will get down and dirty, uh, but a man who has perfectly manicured nails and wears makeup. Um, and that is that is seen as a, an evil and vain endeavor. And then there is the there's the racial element the Spartans are all white and the Persians are all black and brown. And then there is a, a clear demarcation between those who are able-bodied and those with disabilities or with physical differences. So the Persians have a harem that is filled with people who uh, have either disabilities or have some sort of deformation. And it's really, uh, I, I think, a, a dangerous discourse to engage in to say that, okay, the good, the good side the West side, the logical side, even though we know historically that the Spartans were deeply superstitious, we're going to say that they think all in logic and reason, uh, and they're all white, and they're all perfect men, and they're all shaped the same way, and then the bad side are all darker and all have very very different bodies uh, and are, are engaging in gender roles in a, in a way that is not conventional. Yeah, and... Uh, to further that point, they also lay slavery as an evil on the Persian side. Yeah. When which... <laughs> the Spart so the entire Spartan way of life is about slave labor. Yeah. The reason they could not have money and have these professional warriors was because they had a slave class called the Helots who did all of the labor for them. And the Helots would often organize rebellions and Spartans would practice war 
killing their slaves as they tried to rebel against Sparta. So they, a few times, call that he is an army of slaves. You have, you have many slaves, but few warriors. You know, and they, they, to the Persians, talk about how they're going to enslave everyone. <laughs> the Greeks were, <laughs> the ancient Greek city-states were slave economies to their very core. Right, right. The entire Greek way of life was based upon owning other human beings. So that's another area where it's like, well, you're kind of like, slavery was the way in the ancient world. Like, that was not considered bad or wrong. And Greeks would not use slavery as a discourse against the Persians. You know, the Persians had a professionally trained army, just like the uh, Greeks did. And in fact... Many Greeks in times of peace who were warriors would act as mercenaries for Persians. We mentioned Xenophon earlier in who wrote the Spartan Constitution. He made his way as a Persian mercenary. He was a paid warrior for Persian empires. So often the Greeks would take jobs fighting alongside the Persians for money. So this idea that they had a slave empire versus the Greek having a free city-state is absolutely historically absurd. Yeah, and that's where that's why I think that um, the fact that the, the objectivity and subjectivity are not clearly demarcated within this film uh, is, is, a, a, is a failing. Uh, so I, I think that if we are telling a story that is Herodotian in nature, that we are acknowledging is propagandistic, we need to really acknowledge that it's propagandistic. We can't have au, au, and you know everyone at the end uh, charging into battle as free Greeks against this unstoppable tide of the East uh, without fully acknowledging that subjectivity of it. I, I think that's fair. You know, I will say what by one of the great classicists I've ever met who taught me pretty much everything I know about ancient Greece and Rome, who directed me through things like Herodotus and helped me become a sharper historical thinker. And uh, this classicist, who is also a Westerner, so this is part of it, loves the movie 300. And the reason this professor does is like, anything that gets people to want to come into my history class is a net good. And anything that takes the ancient world and like kind of revitalizes it for a modern audience is is a net good for the historical uh, for historical understanding. I think it is incumbent upon us, you and I, Laurel, products of Western education, to notice the dangerous us and othering that happens, yeah, yeah, and to not fall victim to it. So if you watch the movie 300 and just enjoy it as its own merits, and it might prompt you to want to pick up a history book, great. If you watch the movie 300 and decide you're going to support, you know, right-wing terrorists that will, you know, ultimately try to do violence against those that are different from you, whether they are different culturally, educationally, religiously, then there's a problem. And I think... You can't have, without Herodotus describing the Greeks of, as, or sorry, without Herodotus describing the Persians of barbarians and making them a savage other, you can't have history as we know it, nor can you have the historical fiction of the 300 as we know it. These things are inextricably linked, and it's our job, to me, not necessarily to condemn as bad, but to say, these are the implicit biases within, and you must be aware of them 
so that they don't capture your thinking about real people today, right? It's totally okay to imagine the ancient world for an hour and a half as these beautiful Spartans, you know, sticking spears in the savage Persians. That's totally okay. Just as in, it's totally okay for three hours to imagine William Wallace, the charge of freedom, you know, chopping up the savage pagan king, uh, Edward the Longshanks. What's not okay is taking that into the real world and projecting it into it. It's our job at the Midnight Myth to uncouple these things. But to me, I'm not in a position to condemn it simply because I also love it. And I'd be a hypocrite if I was also going to condemn it. And I think to me, that's the the nuance point. I think you do raise a really good point here. And it's something that I, I agree with a lot of aspects of. Something that we've come back to and you just said, uh, you know, about uh, Braveheart the last couple of weeks is the role of historical responsibility and intent when you're creating historical fiction and like what really is the value of historical fiction? Why does it exist? Um, and so I, I, I think we've talked about stories that um, either take the responsibility on full throated like Hamilton does. I think it like it, it explicitly tells you to be responsible when you are consuming history um, and then we have Braveheart, which does not challenge you to do that, but tells a really good story. And then we have 300, which I think falls somewhere in the middle uh, because you you are you are fed a subjective tale. You are fed a tale of Spartans telling Spartan stories. and uh, and you are introduced to this with myth. We didn't even talk about the um, you know the beginning sequence, which I think is really interesting when we have the legend of Leonidas being told when we meet this character for the first time, it is through a myth. Uh, it's through this mini hero's journey that he goes through where he has to leave his mother's side, endure a road of trials, enter a cave, which is like the belly of the whale, defeat a monster, and then return home a master of multiple worlds and a king and someone with one foot uh, on earth and one foot in the divine. Like, this is uh, this is the story that is... I keep coming back to it. So uh, impossible to separate the history and the mythology of it. Uh, And so I I think you're right in that we have to be the responsible ones here. We have to recognize, okay, this is history. This is myth. This is where I'm stepping into dangerous waters and I have to stay away from indulging in stereotype. Um, I still, you know, I, I still look at this movie and I think that Zack Snyder made some really poor decisions with it and you know could have could have not made those decisions and it still would have been effective but um i i really appreciate your perspective oh yeah and i think that's totally cool too and i think that is totally fair you know there is no real evidence that the spartans would slaughter their children their babies yeah that is been that's something that is debated among historians whether they sort of practiced a eugenic practice yeah, where they inspected every single baby, and if it didn't look strong or healthy, or if it was misshapen, they would, you know, just kill the baby. There are no mass child graves. So, for example, one of the charges that the Romans had against Carthage is that they produced, they did human sacrifices, and that's one of the reasons the um, Romans wanted to go to war with Carthage in the Punic Wars, which there were three, and that was largely believed to be Roman propaganda until mass graves were discovered that appeared to be remains of human sacrificing, 
making everyone think, oh, maybe the Carthaginians did actually practice human sacrificing. Um, Maybe the Romans didn't make that up. On similar vein, one of the charges against the Spartans by the Athenians was that they would kill their infants and that they said that that was, you know, savage. Whereas we're not really certain if that's true because most of what we know of ancient Greece comes from the Athenians because they wrote more down. That's where the philosophy was happening. That's where um, historical disciplines were coming out of. So, so much of what we know from ancient Greece is slanted towards pro-Athenian and the Spartans did not write as much down. So we're not sure if that practice really happened. We do know from Xenophon's writing of the Spartan constitution that the agogi is a real thing, that they would actually put their Spartan boys through these immense physical and mental trials that were quite harsh by modern standards that we would consider abuse and that they would abuse their their boys through starvation. Yeah, absolutely. They would have to make they'd have to steal to eat, they would fight, they'd be thrown in the wild just like we see in this movie. So that we know is most likely very uh, an accurate representation. The story with the wolf is definitely not anything backed by any oh, historical totally, documents. Oh, totally made up by Frank Miller, but very effective as like a a little dumb show of what's to come. It's like, it looks like the hot gates. It's uh, against all odds. It's this, you know, lion of a king. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. But um, yeah, so I mean, that's really, that speaks to the point of when you, we are here in 2020 and we are asking ourselves, what is the value of history? And when you go back and you read historical documents, you have to, you have to, in certain ways, try to uncouple what is fact versus what is fiction. And the movie 300, I think you hit the nail on the head, is a fictional account of a historical event. It is a piece of modern myth. It is about a myth of Spartans, which resonate through to today. Yeah. There's a reason why so many high school football teams are called the Spartans. Spartan spirit. And college teams are called the Spartans. There's a reason why the legacy of the Spartans continues through this day. And no, there's no better historical event that perf- personifies Spartanness than the Battle of Thermopylae. It is the event of Spartan history that says, yeah, that's the Spartans. That's who these guys were. There are plenty of times when the Spartans actually did surrender. They did not all go down fighting like Leonidas. It's a really hard thing to do, right? To say, we're going to stay here and die so you can retreat and muster the rest of the army. And that is a amazing thing. And the fact that his men were like, yep, we're staying right by our king. And the fact that that happened is something that's worth remembering in particular in 2020 America, in a world that seems more slipping into it's all about me. The Spartans remind us that it is about we, and it's always been about we, It's always about sacrificing and doing your part to sacrifice for the greater good. If 300 men can choose to die so ancient Greece can live, that's where we get philosophy, that's where we get history, and that's where we get mythology from. The three pillars of the midnight myth. You wouldn't have our podcast 
without Leonidas. I'm serious. Yeah, no, truly. <laughs> I am not joking around. Yeah. And we wouldn't have this podcast if we didn't have a Western civilization, which was being created in this era and time. So as much as we can say that there are problems, we have to thank Herodotus for creating the intellectual framework of that course, gave yeah. us Western historical discipline, something that is the great intellectual passion of my life. Amazing. I, I, I would say drop the mic, but they are on stands. That's wonderful. And um, do you want to talk a little bit about God Kings? I was going to say, do you want to move to God Kings before we wrap? Yeah. Do you Let's want, do it. Yeah. Go, go for it. You want me to take the lead? Yeah, you take the lead. So the, the one charge that Herodotus lays against the Persians is that they're, they call their kings gods, and the one charge that the character Leonidas and Frank Miller and Zack Snyder lay against the Persians is that they call the kings gods, and this is very historically accurate. In the ancient Near East, those who were kings fashioned themselves as divine in nature, as living gods. This comes about around... 2300 BCE, when there was a Sumerian city-state called Ur, U-R, that rose to form a prominent Babylonian empire. So it held large swathes of territory. And in its third dynastic period, so the third dynasty of Ur, emerges a stele. Now, a stele is a stone tablet that has carvings on it. These are used largely as propaganda tools by rulers to claim things like on this date there was a great battle and the king massacred their enemies. Um, oftentimes there's a mixture of a little bit of writing, but most of the storytelling is through pictures. And there's a stele of the king, we don't know this king's name, wearing a divine headdress. In the ancient Near East, there's a particular type of hat, a headdress, that all of the gods are shown wearing. And it looks like just a series of horns stacked on top of each other with a large one over the skull, and they get smaller and come up to a bit of a point. There is a king wearing one of these hats as a god, and it has people prostrating, so bowing before and worshiping the king as a god. And we know it's a king because of the inscription that's on there. This stele is actually, if you want to see it and you're in the New York area, it's in the... Um, Metropolitan Museum of Art, at least it was about 20 years ago. Sometimes they move around. And it's really quite beautiful and fascinating in their Ancient Near East exhibit, which is such oh, outstanding. a great exhibit, the Ancient Near East exhibit in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So I wrote a paper on this steely back in my college days. This is when the transition from kings as men in the Ancient Near East to kings as gods now, why did this happen? And it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating. As the ancient Near Eastern empires became more technologically, culturally sophisticated, the powers of the kings became more consolidated. So the king became incredibly powerful. The king could determine who would live or die by adjudicating trials and disputes and crimes. The king could determine the flow of a river. So if the king said, I want this river to flow the other way, they had the technology to do it. The king could build cities and great temples and buildings. So the king could say, I'd like a city here. I'd like a temple there. And it was so. Now, we are dealing with pre-logical societies. It is the Greeks who invent logic. And we've talked about this before. We live in a time, this was a time called mythopoetic knowledge systems. So if I can speak and someone could die. I can speak, 
and someone can live. I can speak and a city is born. I can speak and a river's direction can change. You have the power of creation and destruction in your hand. Those are the powers of the gods. In a mythopoetic sense, how am I not a god? I am literally uh, doing all of the things that the gods do. I have become a god as a king. And kings began to be worshipped as divine gods. This is something that we see in Xerxes. So Xerxes very much fashioned himself a god. This is something that it took a while, but did not take in Western civilization. So it wasn't until Alexander the Great in which he floated the idea that he was um, the son of Zeus and not the son of Philip, and maybe got assassinated by his troops for it, or maybe he just died of disease. We're not sure which. But what is known is that when Alexander started floating the idea of him being a god, that really ticked everyone in Greece off. Because when Alexander conquered Persia, the Persians are like, you're the new emperor, or you're the new king, you're a god. They started worshiping him. And that really ruffled the feathers of his fellow Macedonians who saw that uh, rulers were human and not divine. And then in the Roman Empire, when a good emperor would die, they would sometimes be named divine, that they would be seen after three days of being dead, rising, this is what happened to Augustus from his tomb and descending into the heavens. Sound like anyone else we know? Right, yeah. The exact same thing was said of Jesus after three days of dying, being resurrected and descending into the heavens. And there are Roman emperors who started being worshipped as gods, but this was after they died. Right. So they still, they were comfortable with them being gods, but only after they died, then they ascended into heavens. But for the ancient Near East and most and ancient Egypt as well, the king was a divine figure living in the flesh. The kings and gods were one. The representation of religious authority and secular authority come from one single individual, and that person is both a human and a god at the same time. Amazing. And like you, yeah, you will see echoes of this reach Western civilization at points, like you were saying about Roman emperors who were deified after death. But then you'll see uh, in the Middle Ages, kings who rule by divine right uh, and the powers of, uh, of the church and the powers of the king often deeply intertwined or there being uh, incredible debate between those because, well, if the king is given his right to rule by God, isn't he, you know, the representative of God on earth or is it the Pope? Like this is, this is something, this is a question that um, all societies seem to wrestle with at some point or another. Uh, but yeah, am amazing that there's this uh, incredibly long history of this and it comes from you know, I, I say something and then it is so. How am I not a god? I say Diet Coke and the Diet Coke appears in my hand. Is Mick Jagger not a god? That's a deep cut. Some people Some might not John, get that. John Mulaney jokes. Uh, yeah, but um, yeah. And so it's it's fascinating. So in the answer to the problem of secular versus re religious authority in the ancient Near East is pretty simple. It's in one individual and that person rules and rules indiscriminately. And this isn't to say that, you know, there aren't dynasties shifting, there aren't wax and wanes, there's no politics that's like, okay, the king's a god. Well, there were definitely those who would challenge the authority of a king. The Persian Empire was not the only empire in the Near East. You know, this started in Ur. 
And I bet most of you, unless you've studied ancient Near Eastern history, have no idea what the third dynasty of Ur is and why right. it's significant yeah. <laughs> in ancient Near East history. So, you know, there have been tons. When the Persian Empire collapsed, then came the Parthians. Then came a Neo-Persian Empire, all until this, you know, one little goat farmer with this really distant, weak tribe decided he heard the voice of God and changed the world forever. And that guy's name was Muhammad. Wow. Yeah. It's all connected. And even then, the secular authority and religious authority in the Middle Ages in the ancient Near East was still highly controlled in one individual. Amazing. Um, do you have any final thoughts on 300? I love this movie. That's it. Nice. I, I Yeah. I mean, what more can Derek say here? I'm sure you could go on at length about the history here, and maybe we'll have to revisit this period of history so that you can flex your muscles a little bit more. And I, it was just kind of awesome to bask in your historical glow in this episode. Um, you know, this, this hasn't changed my mind on 300 by any means. I still have major problems with it, and hopefully I was able to articulate those with some semblance of uh, coherence here on the episode. But oh, Hold on. Yeah. Should we talk about how it's treatment of women? I know... Um, yeah, I mean, uh, there's one woman in this film and actually we made a joke when we, when we saw her show up because it's Lena Headey, of course, and she plays Queen Gorgo and I'm, uh, six months pregnant and I saw her face and immediately said, oh God, I just see her and I want a glass of wine. Um, but, uh, Gorgo is, uh, is almost an interesting character, even though we don't hear her actual name on screen but I think it gets back into the performance of gender and the um, the superiority of masculinity within the world of the film. Uh, Gorgo is subjected to a, a sexual assault that is not part of the comic, to my knowledge. Uh, it's inserted by Snyder, um, and this is done by uh, Theron, the, the politician, and he says something like, you will not enjoy this. Uh, this will not be over quickly, he has this very cruel speech as he is assaulting her. And later on the floor of the legislature, she stabs him and says the same lines back to him after she has given um, a very powerful speech to the legislature. So the moments when Gorgo is portrayed as the most powerful, they are moments when she is portrayed as the most masculine. So she parrots back the same cruel lines that uh, Theron was speaking during a sexual assault while performing a penetrative act on him as well. Um, so I, I think there there are some interesting uh, things to to glean about Spartan women from the film, and they are at least uh, lip service is given to the fact that they are revered or they are admired, but it's often for their procreative abil- abilities. It's you know Spartan women are great because they give birth to Spartan men, and then when they're actually you know, presented as strong, they're presented as strong in a masculine way. So that's a thing that I also have problems with, but. Yeah, and that's fair. And in ancient Sparta, the Spartan, I mean, ancient Sparta is a fiercely patriarchal society. Of course, yeah. All of ancient Greece was, all of the ancient Greece city-states. But Sparta was known for being the least patriarchal of the patriarchal ancient societies. And this was due, this was rather functional because the Spartan men all had to fight and all had to go out and fight, well, if all of the Spartan men are out fighting a war, who's going to run the place? And this would then fall on Spartan women who would run administratively the city until the return of the men. 
So they were, they had more respected roles within society, were asked to do things other than procreate. And there was the belief that if you are a Spartan woman and you give birth to a Spartan, a Spartan man, that you are better than a Greek man in a Greek city state. So Spartans viewed their women above other Greek men. Right. And I do believe that, uh, you know, women were, uh, women in Sparta were, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm certain. I'm certain there was a, a level of objectivity or objectification of them. But upon Leonidas's death, Gorgo would have been expected to remarry. She wouldn't have been expected to like mourn for the rest of her life. She had a certain amount of independence, I think, in terms of like where her life could go after that. Um, again, it's not something I I have a lot of historical knowledge of, but it seems like there is an interesting story to be told there that doesn't really get told in 300. I think that's fair. Awesome. Um, but yeah, like I was saying, this hasn't changed my mind on 300, but has really opened um, a, a really interesting conversation. We have had uh, three weeks of really fabulous discourse on history, historical fiction, historical responsibility, and storytelling intent. Uh, this is something we can come back to anytime. You know, stories about uh, the, the recent past or the distant past, they always have something new uh, to bring to the current world. They always have a reason to revisit those stories because there is something that resonates in us today. That's why we keep telling them. Um, so this has been awesome. Uh, I, what more can I say? Until next time. Tonight we dine in hell. Be kind. Be kind. <laughs>